We've been doing this series, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship. Uh, don't, don't engage unless you want to be messed up, um, <laughs> is probably what I would say. Uh, I know uh, in our small group every week, we, we do some of the, and I know many of you are doing the groups, we, you have to do these little tests every week on the content to decide if you're like where you're at in the emotionally healthy journey with like if last week was limits, uh, then embracing your, God's given limits in your life. Then you do these tests and the score and like your, your great thing as a small group leader is you get to reveal what their score means every week of whether or not it means they're an infant, a child, an adolescent, or an adult. And let's just go, we're not scraping many adults in my group, okay? And, uh, but that's awesome because we just realized, like, hey, we might have been following the Lord for 10 or 20 years, but it doesn't mean we've grown up in this stuff. And uh, I think all of us have ways that we can grow in it, and it's been cool just journeying that at that community level. Today we're going to continue that uh, conversation, and our next theme is about discovering the treasures buried in grief and loss. And so I just want to say, like, as a way of getting going, this is not, like, going to be an exciting topic to embrace. Uh, it's got that sort of soberness to it. And also for some people here in the midst of deep grief and loss, uh, this might be particularly hard, but hopefully you, you, you'll find some treasures in it today. Um, but no, Hayden's going to talk at the end with some of the stuff that we've got to help and support you. We don't want to open a can of worms and just you know, leave it there um, for you. So we'll, we'll talk more about that. But one book that I've found incredibly helpful in my journey is a book by Timothy Keller, and it's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. And I think it does an excellent job at giving us a theology of pain and suffering and also a great pastoral job about how do we walk with God in relationship through that. And so that would be a book I would recommend uh, to people out there. We're going to start with Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. So you know it's going to be good if we're starting in Ecclesiastes because not many messages start there. Not many messages end up there at all in general. It's relatively a depressing book. But... Um, Ecclesiastes 3 verse 1. Ecclesiastes is what happens if you try to do philosophy without God. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. There's a time to be born and there's a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. There's a time to embrace and there's a time to refrain from embracing. There's a time to seek and there's a time to lose. There's a time to keep and a time to cast away. There's a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. I don't know about you, I only like half the things on the list. It starts by saying there's a time for everything, and then it, you know, half of the list is encouraging and positive, and the other half of the list is depressing and negative. And as much as I would like there to not be a time for everything, the Bible lets us know pretty clearly that there is a time for even the things we don't like. Yeah, you know, I don't want there to be a time to die. I don't want there to be a time to pluck up what is planted unless I'm eating it. 
I don't want there to be a time to kill unless, once again, I'm eating it. I don't want there to be a time to break down, a time to weep, a time to mourn, a time to cast away stones, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to lose, a time to cast away, a time to tear. I definitely don't want a time to keep silent, a time to hate, a time for war. But the Bible is clear that there's time not just for the things that we like, but there's a time for the things that are hard in life. Our Western culture, and we, could, we need to realize some of the, you know, we always need to understand the culture we're being conformed to so instead we can be transformed into the likeness of Jesus by thinking differently, by renewing our minds, which starts by the Spirit and then our minds coming after that. But in our culture, in our Western culture, we've got lots of language, we've got lots of books, we've got lots of podcasts, we've got lots of framing and thought for things when they're going well, for things when they're growing, for things that are getting bigger and better and moving forwards and upwards and onwards. You know, our Western culture, we love all that stuff, but we don't have a lot of language. We don't have a lot of tools. We don't have a lot of framing for walking through death. Actually, our culture ill-equips us for death for suffering, for loss, and for grief. And sadly, in Western Christianity, it isn't that much different. We want to be victorious all of the time. We have the same problems. In our Christianity, we got lots of language for advancement, for faith, for breaking through, for God doing great things, for, you know, we have our own way of saying bigger, better, going forward, we say the best is yet to come. But we don't have a lot of language for loss, for grief, for setback, for subtraction, for those times when life inevitably will not always go onwards and upwards. I think in reflection, that's why the last two and a bit years have been quite difficult for many people and, not, and still difficult for Christians too, is because COVID has put this great interruption in our trajectory of life. Wait, what do you mean I can't go on holiday? What do you mean I can't travel? What do you mean I can't work? What do you mean I can't do this? It's like we're used to being so in control and life going in a certain direction that for two years this whole thing means that it couldn't go that way anymore. And in those times we discover, wait, do I have the tools? Do I have the framework? Do I have the the, the faith language and the faith framing, not the faith because we think of faith as getting through those things, but the faith to discover some of the treasure in those things. We're overly victorious in our language, especially in like churches that are a little bit more like ours. We love Sunday Jesus, not so much Friday Jesus. We only love Friday Jesus if we can quickly say, but remember Sunday. Like we don't want to dwell on Thursday night communion Jesus too much without mentioning resurrection Jesus. We don't want to dwell too much on Friday death and suffering, gore and blood and execution and sacrifice Jesus without quickly remembering Sunday Jesus. But most of Jesus' 33 and a bit years looked more like Friday than Sunday. And if we're not careful, if we can't hold both, it leaves us being overly positive with a fake positivity. 
with even a toxic positivity at times, where the moment we start to share openly and honestly about some of what we're going through in life that might be hard or loss or grief or not on this upward trajectory, we quickly say, but, oh, but God's good. Like as if we have to pull ourselves up from that. We have to catch ourselves from this thing. We put on our fake smiles. We tell people, yeah, not bad. Yeah, yeah, no, no I'm good. Yep. Even though we might be in deep, deep pain. And we skim our pain like somebody skimming stones across the water. It might be very deep, but we just sort of go along the top of it because we're terrified of what might be beneath there. We're terrified of drowning in it. I think we're afraid to talk about it honestly because it's seen as negative. And we've surely got to be positive as Christians. It's seen as anti-faith. Oh, you can't, don't let those words come out of your mouth, you know. You might be agreeing with something. And it's created something that is quite immature and unhelpful. When there's loss and stripping away, here's, here's where, I, where I think, you know, the crux of why our Western Christianity doesn't do a very good job at it is because when there's loss and stripping away in our lives, we feel like we're going backwards, not forwards as if there's some great interruption in our life, not life itself. And every time we experience loss and pain, our first questions are to say, why me, God? Or where are you, God? As in our default setting is to believe God's in the onwards and upwards, but he's really hard to find in anything other than that. Which actually, if we absorb ourselves in this thing, that is not the way it teaches us to think. That is not the way it teaches us to relate. I mean, there's this book of Job. I don't know if you've ever come across that one. Not many people have read it from start to finish because it's a bit depressing. And if that was your monthly devotionals, um, but it's pretty much 40 chapters of how much somebody's life sucked and them just talking about how sucky it was. It's the book of Job's. And then there's this book, Lamentations. You definitely skip over that one. It's a whole book about being sad and, and spiritual language for being sad. And then certainly the Psalms, there's at least half of those which are just straight out lament. Then you've got the book of Jeremiah. His life sucks so much. Like, yes, he was called by God and he spoke some great things. But imagine this. Hey, I need you to be a prophet to the nation cool, cool, um, okay, I'll do that. Um, yeah, but when you say things to people, like, they, they can't repent. It's not going to change. Like, it's all just going to be the same and nobody's ever going to listen to you. Okay, so you're sending me on a mission that's never going to succeed. Yeah, yeah, go. <laughs> It'll be choice. And that was his life. That's Jeremiah's life. And then when you, when you, like, just the whole story of the Israelites, like, we love the highlights of, like, Abraham was blessed, and Moses, like, he led the, he led the people out of captivity, and we love, like, Joshua, he helped them into the promised land, and Gideon, they fought off some enemies, and Deborah, and all these, like, stories, and David the king, and Solomon, but they are, like, little blimps in a 1,500-year story of suffering of oppression, of captivity. We love the crossing the Red Sea moment, not so much the 40 years in the wilderness. And, and, and we don't, like the, our whole story of the people of God is an identity of knowing God and suffering and pain. 
knowing him in loss and grief. Not to mention our Lord and Savior Jesus, born in a barn, refugee fleeing for his life in his early years, living in a foreign place, brought back to the most despised town in Israel, Nazareth, where nothing good can come from. Then in his ministry life, you know why he did most of his ministry in the Galilee area? is because he was always on the run. And as the place where three different political jurisdictions collided, and so it was easy for him to skip around the lake and not be in his, he's in Herod's territory now, he's in Pilate's territory, and he could actually manage his own sort of safety in that place. He only visited Jerusalem, and every time he did, he was, you know, there were plots to kill him. And this is like Jesus knows about this life of suffering. And then the church, like Acts 2, Day of Pentecost, huge highlight moment. Acts 3, not a big highlight. Acts 4, not a big highlight. Like we got these prison moments, we've got persecution, we've got Christians being ripped from their homes, we get to Acts 7 and Stephen's getting killed, and you know, it's like, and this whole history of the church, even though it undermines the whole Roman Empire, but the history, the way that happens is by being fed to the lions and ostracized from society and scorned and looked down upon, and other than our little blimp of like Western Christianity, most of the story of being a follower of Jesus is not on Onwards and upwards. It's having a wrestle and find God in pain and suffering and loss and disappointment. And, and here's the crux of what we're doing today is if we're going to become emotionally healthy disciples, we need to learn to discover the treasures that are hidden in grief and loss. We need to not spend our whole time skimming it, avoiding it, or pretending it's not happening. There are devastating losses, the death of a child, premature death of a loved one, a disability, a divorce, a rape, emotional or sexual abuse, incurable disease, infertility, the shattering of a lifelong dream, suicide, betrayal, natural disasters. These are those big devastating losses. But life's full of little losses too. Loss of emotional or relational security as you move from one sphere of life into the next. The loss of friendships when you move town or they move town. Children growing up and they're no longer as dependent on us as parents and losing a sense of our identity. Leadership changes in church. Our small group ending or multiplying or changing in some way. These are all the daily losses that we have to find ways to walk through. And losses that are not grieved, they accumulate in our soul. Like heavy stones, they weigh us down. And when we fail to attend to them, they prevent us from living freely and honestly with God and others in the future. And I know that all too well. Having been in church leadership for 16 years, most of the time there's not enough time to grieve the disappointments and to grieve the hurts and to process the losses. You just have to keep going, you just have to keep going. And eventually, all of that stuff, when you slam on the brakes, will eventually fly from the back seat to the front seat and catch up on you in some way, shape, or form. When my dad died four years ago, he's 56 years old, sort of healthy, um, I remember getting the phone call 
Some friends were coming over for dinner. They were on their way already. It was a Friday night. Answered the phone, and on the other line, I was hearing that my dad had just fallen over, collapsed in Bali, and passed away at the age of 56. I remember putting down the phone, telling Katie, trying to decide, should we tell the people that are coming for dinner not to come, or, you know, like, what to do now and this? They came, and then it was awkward. Um, they were like, what's wrong? You know, <laughs> we hadn't told them, and so, anyway, it was an interesting time, you're not sure always what to do. But I remember a friend calling me the next day and, and saying some wise words to me at the time and saying, you know, you don't need to pretend. It's okay. Show your church what it's like to be faithful and walk through the pain and the suffering and the grief and the loss. Don't hide it from them because we need to do this stuff better. And while we didn't do it perfectly, of course, we did try to do it honestly. And we took time and we adjusted and we were honest about it. But when I look back on it, I have to say that those initial few months and certainly the year or so after that, some of the spiritually richest time in my life, because there is stuff for us in grief and loss, that if we skim, not only does it hold us back, but we miss the treasure of it. I wonder why we're so allergic to it allergic to loss and grief and the treasure, and we miss the treasures. I think there's at least two big reasons. There'll be 20 more, but the two big ones are we resist losing control, and we view losses as interruptions. On resisting losing control is our culture, and sadly, our Christianity places a high value on control and continued ascent through life. Bigger, better, the best is yet to come. But grief and loss are not these journeys upward, they're these journeys downward. They involve surrender and descent, and we don't have a lot of framing for that. It's not an exaggeration, Pete Cazero says in his book, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, it's not an exaggeration to say that our culture, and sadly our churches as well, are loss-denying and grief-phobic. We're terrified if we stop and feel what's going on, if I fully feel my anger, if I fully feel my sadness, if I fully feel my depression, if I acknowledge my huge doubts that I have towards God, where will that lead me? What will others think of me if I give them attention? I better just pretend everything's okay. So we minimize our failures and our disappointments we, we say they're not really that big of a deal. We're just going on with it, onwards and upwards. And in that, we block the Holy Spirit from getting into those deep places. And we condemn ourselves to a life of shallow spirituality will eventually be undone in some way, shape, or form. We resist losing control. We, losses are interruptions. You know, the, when you read a graph, you always want to see it going like this. You know, like, it doesn't matter what it is. My property values needs to go that way. My stock market portfolio, my health, my career. Like, we want everything to go this way. My, my feeling, how connected and alive I feel with God. Better go this way. Or upwards and to the right. Everything must go, right? That's, that's our sort of sense in life, that it must be going that way. And every time a loss or a grief or a pain or a suffering comes our way, 
it's a, it's a deviation from the script. It's not upwards and to the right, it's downwards and to the left, it feels. And it messes with our picture, and because we think it messes with our picture, we think that God said that's how life is supposed to go. We think glory to glory means that. We think that, you know, everything's just supposed to be best is yet to come means that until I die. It's not how life works. That life has all sorts of shapes that draw itself as we play it out. Some people's lives, sadly, have way more shapes than others. But God's in all of it. And the fact that we see it as an interruption, not actually just life itself, is part of why we don't do this well. So how can we do it better? Well, Pete Scazzaro in his book offers us three ways to deal with this, to find the treasure hidden in it better. The first is to pay attention to the pain. The second is to wait in the confusing in-between. Hate that one. And the third is allow the old to birth the new. Allow the old to birth the new. Phase one, pay attention to the pain. Man, we love avoiding pain, don't we? I know Jake's here, he's a great um, physiotherapist, and every time I go see him, he keeps telling me, like, the pain is trying to tell you something. The pain, it's not to be ignored, it's not to numb, it's not to, the pain is telling you that something's wrong. Am I right, Jake? Hopefully I'm not misquoting you. Sort of right. Um, I'm using it anyway. Preachers, that's what we do. We butcher things. Hopefully not the scriptures, uh, but, you know... But the pain's trying to tell you something. It's telling you that something's not right. It's trying to protect something that's broken or hurt or injured or torn. And often, like, we can understand that to a certain level in physical pain. But normally the way we try to deal with that is pop a few more pills and get on with things. But that's how we do our spiritual life too. Oh, my heart's hurting. My soul's hurting. Oh, well, let's worship the Lord again. Oh, I'll just serve again. I'll just go again and we just pretend like it's not there and like it doesn't matter and as if we can just like get past it that's the point rather than to pay attention to the pain that's why the church calendar is amazing for our devotional life because it takes us through these different sequences in the year and they're all not resurrection sunday some of them are lent in this idea of what's being what's going from me how do i connect with pain and suffering in my life Every day, one of the things I do is I pray a different psalm every day. And, you know, since about half to two-thirds of them are laments, it teaches me to pray ways that I'm ill-equipped to pray. It helps me engage and pay attention to the pain because I start reading a psalm about, you know, some deep pain and some anguish that the psalmist wrote, and I initially go, I, I don't have any of that. That's no big deal. And then as I dwell in it, I go, well, if I'm going to pray this with some authenticity, I better look for where that might be in my life. Uh, when you read the Psalms, you, you realize that God does allow His people to experience great pain. And even though we don't always understand why, He's always there in the midst of it. We need to pay attention. We need to explore our icebergs. You know, our pain, whatever we're feeling on the surface is an indication of something deep and greater beneath the waters. Whether it's our anger or our frustration or our anxiety or our sadness or our gladness, 
our joy, it is an indicator that there's more going on beneath the surface. And if we want to be people who pay attention to the pain, we have to explore the iceberg, not ignore the iceberg. What are you angry about? Why are you angry about it? What are you sad about? Why are you sad about it? One of the things I do in my life is I pray the Eximen at night. The Eximen is a way of praying and reflecting on your day. And uh, as you pray, the Eximen has some basic steps, but effectively you start by giving thanks for the day that's been. Then you reflect over all the things that have happened in the day with the Lord and you just are mindful of what was joyous and what was annoying and what was just blah or whatever those things are. And then you pick something that was particularly painful or hard or perceived as negative. You pick one of those things and you sit on it with the Holy Spirit and you ask this question, where were you in the midst of that God? And you wait for God to reveal to you where you were least likely to see him in the day which is in the midst of your hardest moments. And then as he reveals that to you, you look forward to the day that comes with hope that you might see him in all of life. And it's a way of paying attention to the iceberg in prayer, not just moving on every day and missing where God is in these things. You know, if you want to have a quality conversation at the end of today with somebody, just ask them one of those questions. What are you angry about? If you're married, maybe ask that one at home. Uh, but, but ask the, these are ways of going deeper with people, and it's important. In our small groups, we could do that this week. Being grounded in paying attention to our pain, it makes us better. It makes us safer. It makes us more self-aware, God-aware, others-aware. And I wonder how much of our mental health dysfunction is amplified because we perceive certain emotions as negative emotions, and so we end up feeling bad for feeling bad, and therefore we're trying to escape it rather than process it all the time. And I think there's something in that for us. As a church culture, how do we build a culture in this church family that pays attention to pain, that mourns with those who mourn and weeps with those who weep? So we go from paying attention to the pain, which is terrifying but necessary, to waiting in the confusing in between. Man, waiting sucks. It sucks so much. But loss and grief always lead to seasons of waiting. They never lead straight into like, oh, you know, into the acceleration of life. They lead to these messy in-betweens. I think one of the number one pastoral pieces of advice we have to give people going through loss and grief is don't make any major decisions. It's sort of like, because it's interesting that when we, are, when we are going through these big losses and grief, we have this urgency to like want to change our career or sell our house or move or change city. It's like because we want to get life going again. We want to get back in control. We want to make things happen. And it's hard for us to wait in the midst of these things. Sometimes it's not the best time to make big decisions. Sometimes it's a necessary time and we can't avoid that. But we have to realize, is it about God's timing or about us trying to get back in control? Often the messy in between, the waiting always involves forgiveness. Whether it's learning to forgive God for what he's you know, allowed you to go through. Or whether it's the fact that so much of our pain is often caused by other people. 
intentionally, unintentionally, offense, hurt, decisions, different things, but we have to work through forgiveness. We have to practice the way of Jesus, which is not that forgiveness happens in just the moment, but we engage in the type of practices that help us become forgiving people, where we do speak forgiveness, where we do release them, where we do trust God's justice over our situations in this earth, and where we bless those who curse us. And we bless those who have hurt us as our way of loving our enemies. This is our way that we work through the confusing in between. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I think we struggle with it because we think they know exactly what they did. But so did Jesus. He knew exactly. So he meant something else. I think he meant they're hurting too, and hurt people always hurt people. They're broken too, and I think when we better understand the mercy God gives us, we become way better equipped to give mercy to others. This year on holiday, I uh, took, took some time out to, um, you know, try and have a, have a new word for the year or something over my life that would guide me uh, in my journey, I do it every year, try and over that break in summer, just like give me something, a new scripture for the year to dwell on each day or just something, God. And so I walked up this, it was a large mountain for me, uh, so it's probably a small mountain for others. Uh, went up this mountain on my own, sat up there, and I thought, God, all right, here you go, you've got me. This is your time to give the word. Please don't take too long. Uh, you know. <laughs> I wanted to have this attitude of like, I'll wait up here until I got the word, but I knew that's just not the case. Um, you know, I would make one up uh, if, I, if I needed to get back down, that would be me. The Lord knows me, you know? I'm like, God, I spent a long time. It took me a long time to get up here. Does that not count as time of waiting? And so I got up there and, you know, it only took like 20 or 30 minutes, which is good. Thanks, God. Appreciate that. That was hard enough. Felt like ours. Um, just waiting for a word. And wouldn't you believe this is the word he gave me while I was getting annoyed at waiting. The word he gave me was, your word for the year is wait. <laughs> In the scripture, those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. And they will mount up with wings like eagles. And they will run and not get weary. And they will walk and not faint. So what did I do after I got the word? I said, thanks God, I ran down the mountain. <laughs> waiting is hard. Our God is very patient. And so when we are patient, we're actually becoming like Him. We're practicing His way. But waiting's where all the magic in life happens. Waiting has a way of emptying us of our pride, our control, our junk. And in that, in that space of grief and loss, the waiting part of it, it actually creates space for God to put something new in there. You know, when I think of even just our journey over the last 10, 11, 12 years, there's so many different like grief and loss points. There's major ones and there's minor ones. There's the minor ones of, well, they're major too, you know, of people leaving or of, of friends leaving or people that you thought you'd be doing it with, you're not doing it with in the same way. And then there's the big things like my dad dying or hitting the wall and burn out. Or there's like over the seasons of church life, we've had a few great church exoduses we just had another one over the last few months over vaccinations. And these things are they're big griefs and losses when you've done many years with people. 
Even when I think of the way we came into church leadership was a great grief and loss of what I thought our life and ministry might look like. But in the midst of all of these things, if we can pay attention to the pain and we can wait in the messy in between, they always give way to new things. There's, there's always something. Like if, even if I think of our, of, of our journey of just being burnt out and all of that, when I think of it as a church, I think like, okay, so we became the pastors, there's this hurting, small, broken church, and then like God breathed on it, and all of these people started coming, and all of these people started finding God, or refinding God, or finding community, and it like, it literally exploded, and we couldn't like keep up with what God was doing in our midst, and then in that, I find myself as a leader and a pastor getting caught up in a world of other churches that are trying to keep up with that world. And you end up in this sort of like mega church world where it's all about continuing to keep that going. And somewhere in all of that, I feel like, man, I've lost my soul of, of leadership. I've lost the soul of the church. I've lost the soul of what I wanted to be as a pastor and what I thought this should, you know, be caught up in. And part of it is like part of hitting the wall is that that incongruency of realizing I'm caught up in something that this isn't who I am. This is what, this isn't what we set out to do and be which God breathed on something and we tried to keep making it happen in a certain way. And, you know, the grief and loss and all of that is, gives way in this weird chapter two sort of journey that we're in of seeing these new sprouts of life. In many ways as a church, we're still in the messy in between of trying to go, let's, let's move into something new that God's doing and let's become someone different in the midst of that. But it gives, gives way to new life. Allow the old to birth the new. God invites us every time in the many small deaths in our lives to trust Him. John 12 verse 24 says, Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If it dies, it gains more friends. <laughs> If it dies, it's not just its own grain of wheat, but it becomes many grains of wheat. And I wonder, you know, part of this pain and messy in between and allowing God to birth something new out of the old is actually getting to that point where we can say goodbye to the old. Because you can't say hello to the new while you're still holding on to the old. This is like a, a basic principle right back in Genesis chapter 2 that a man shall leave his mother and father, say goodbye, and cleave to his new wife, say hello. And you know, if you've still got that strong attachment to your parents, and you, anyway, we won't get into that. So we'll do that next term. Um, you're going to struggle with this new attachment. If you haven't said goodbye, you're going to struggle to say hello. And I think so many, we're so holding on to the pain, we're holding on to the losses, we're holding on to those futures that we hoped for, we're holding on. But through the process of grief and loss, we actually need to learn to let go of those things over time. Wait so that out of them, God can birth something new. Loss always gives way to new beginnings. There's always hope. I know this has been like, hey, we're trying to like not be as victorious and let's embrace some of this other side of stuff, but it needs to be seen in the context of victory that there's always hope, that God is always just, 
that God is the promiser of redeeming all things. He's doing it now and he will bring it to completion. And why our life might not go like that in all of the external factors in our spirit and our soul, it can get stronger and stronger and stronger. Just the process of strength is breaking down and rebuilding all of the time. He's a redeemer. He'll make it all right one day. He'll make it all right. In our house, I'm a Discovery Channel sort of guy. Katie hates it. She hates it so much. But luckily, I have some sons that love it. I love Aussie gold hunters. I love opal outback hunters. I love gold rush, the American gold hunters. And I love white water gold, which is where they're like, they're in these like Alaskan rapids diving for gold. It's just ridiculous. Anyway, gold is rarely found on the surface these days. Those days are over. It has to be mined for. And in all of these shows, what's common is that they have to remove the overburden, all of the stuff that's on the surface to get down to the pay dirt. And then they have to dig up that pay dirt and it's messy. And then they have to dump it in stockpiles. And then they move it from those stockpiles and they run it through their shakers and their vibrators and their cleaners and their grills. And it goes through the sleuth box. And in the sleuth box, it discovers all of the treasure that was buried beneath all of that dirt that nobody else could see. And so if we're willing to face the pain, if we're willing to wait in the in-between, and if we can trust God to birth something out of it, we will discover some treasure in this process, some rich, glorious treasure, which is what it's all about. Like the first treasure I think we'd find is we find a new revelation of God himself through pain and suffering. I know when my dad died, I would open up the Bible the next day for my devotional life, and I thought, I cannot be bothered with this. I don't, I don't know where to turn in this. I can't be bothered reading and studying this. And so I found myself in Psalm 23 every day for about six weeks. That's all I was in. And in that, I discovered a new dimension of who God was to me and a new intimacy of Him as my shepherd. I have all that I need. The second treasure we could find is that God makes us softer and more compassionate. I've always been this person with a big capacity that could take on the load until I hit burnout. Pre-burnout, I thought people that couldn't rise to the occasion were just soft, <laughs> honestly. But it's made me, the loss of my own strength and my own ability has made me way more sensitive, I hope, to others. The third treasure we could find is that God gives us greater revelation of ourselves that in grief and loss, we learn more about who we are and what we care about and our sort of authentic life that God is leading us on. The fourth treasure is that God makes us more of our true selves in Christ, not the true self that we think we are, but the true self that He thinks He is. Sorrow wears away our masks. It wears away our pretenses, and it helps us to embrace our vulnerability and our weakness rather than hide it. If we actually walk through, you know, this loss and this grief with God, it actually helps us be an image to God where, like Paul could say, through my weakness, he is strong, so I don't have to hide my weakness. And the last thing 
And no doubt there's many more. The last thing is that God makes us more alive to our astonishing world. You know, grief and loss has a way of helping us see what really matters in life. And it helps, and when we're on this trajectory in life, we can be blinded to so much of the good, glorious, beautiful things that are around us. But through pain and loss, it helps us just sit around a dinner table and go, oh, this is special. It helps us, you know, walk outside and go, gosh, that's beautiful. It helps us see things that we didn't see before and appreciate them. Let's finish with John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews because Jesus was risen. Jesus came and he stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus is risen. He is victorious. He is the Lord and Savior and the Redeemer of all things. But here he is with some scars. Here he is with some scars. And he can be victorious, but still show his pain, still show his suffering. And he says, in the same way I have been sent, so I am sending you. You know, we are not good witnesses to Jesus when we go around saying, God's good all the time. Pretending that life is perfect for us because we are Christians, when we know it's not. We are good witnesses when we look, walk through life as it really is tough, hurting, struggling at times, and can go, but man, my faith helps me to see these things in a different light. My faith gives me hope that God's at work in the midst of these things. So look at my scars. I don't need to hide them from you, friend, because this scar's a story, and this scar's a story, and that scar's a story, and we can be open and honest, and I think that's the witness the world needs. I want to pray for you today. I want to pray for you if you need the courage to embrace the pain that you've been avoiding. I want to pray for you if you need the grace for the waiting. And I want to pray for you to see the new things that God is birthing around you. I don't know which one of those things it is particularly for you, but I want you to just acknowledge what that is in your own spirit right now and let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those that have pain that they've been skimming over, Lord, and they need the courage to pay attention to it, to explore it, to dive deep into it, Lord, would you give them courage by your Holy Spirit? Would you whisper to them that it's going to be okay, that you're in the pain too, and help us to face what we've been avoiding? Lord, to those who are in the in-between and need grace because it's always longer than we want it to be, God, be our grace by your Holy Spirit. God, we receive a fresh filling of your grace and an impartation of your grace even right now. And God, 
for those who have been wondering, when will the new things come? Lord, will you show us where they're sprouting forth around us? God, maybe we've been looking for the wrong things, and so we've been blinded to your work. Would you show us where the new things are? Whisper to us, speak to us, move in us as we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.